we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 and 2. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible, you can flip there and that will give you a head start. Um, If you were to come over to our house and watch Laura and I watch a football game, I think it would be a little bit amusing to you. Um, and and here, here's how this typically goes down. And I, I think where you see the amusement is when our team is getting smashed. And because here's what you see come out in Laura and I, she is like the eternal optimist. And I call myself a realist. Now, some might say, Pastor, I, I call it a realist. And so, so here's how this plays out. Our team is down 30. There's four minutes left in the fourth quarter. Laura has already got it mapped out in her brain how we're going to win. We're going to go down and score. Kick an onside, get it, score again. Kick another onside, get it, score again. Then they're going to fumble the kickoff and we're going to score again. And we're going to win. That's how it's going to go down. I've already thrown the remote control through the TV screen and turned it off. You know, so we're just totally different. Um, so, so I look at that and clearly say, not going to happen. D- d- turn the TV off. Now, if you were a first century observer of Christianity, even the most out of touch with reality, optimist, that person, whoever that person is, would look at Christianity in first century world and say, this does not stand a chance. There is no way this thing is going to happen. Everybody hates it. You've got the Roman guy, they hate it. You've got the occupying power, they don't, they're going to try to stamp it out. You've got the Jewish people, they hate it. They're trying to kill everybody that proclaims it. So you've got like this setting of how in the world is this going to work? Okay, now to even complicate matters in in Acts chapter 4, it's going to say that these people that were carrying this message, it's going to say they were the ordinary, kind of the common folk, the uneducated people, probably fit in well here crowd. And, And so to complicate it, you've got like, these are the guys that would be picked last on the playground that are trying to carry this thing out. And so you've got a really hopeless situation. Now, if you were to go to them and say, hey, in 2,000 years, I just want you to know, this thing that you would laugh at today is going to be the most powerful thing that has ever hit the planet. I I mean, there's no way they would have bought into that. Okay, now this is how um, one observer, this is, uh, he was a professor at Yale University. This is what he said about early Christianity and just about what has happened to it since then. I think this is interesting. Um, he, He said this, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that from the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast, this is his way of saying it, release of energy, virtually unequaled in history, without which the future course of Christianity is inexplicable. So, so here's what he's saying. 17 chapters into the book of Acts, they drag Jason and a couple of other of these Christians to the authorities. And here's what they say about them. These are the people who have turned the world upside down. And so this guy from Yale, he's saying, listen, there is no way this could have happened apart from something totally supernatural going on in their midst. And so right from the get-go in, in, in Acts, Luke wants you to know this is what has happened. I have formally dealt with, this is like the first couple of verses in Acts. I have formally dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And Luke is in essence saying, I want to remind you that what this guy is just, it's true. There has been something happen, an event happen that has unleashed all that you're seeing. 
that makes this whole thing possible. So it all goes, ties into the life and work of Jesus. And this was kind of what we talked about last week. The cross of Jesus, the life and work of Jesus is the thing, the crazy power that was really, I mean, it's that thing that has made all of this. 2,000 years later, we're sitting in this place, worshiping all of that goes back to the life and work of Jesus. So, so Luke's right off the bat, I want you to see that all this that you're reading in Acts, it has a tie. And that tie is what Jesus did on the cross. That, that, okay, so maybe you could say it this way. It is the gospel that changes everything. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes us as individuals and us as a movement. The gospel makes all of that possible. The gospel is the driving force. The gospel is the energy. The gospel is everything. It changes all that has been known. Okay, now let me give you two reasons why the gospel changes things. Um, Number one would go like this. Because when the gospel hits a person, when the gospel is made known and we joyfully surrender to the gospel, here's the first thing that happens. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit, okay, this is kind of what the first few verses in Luke are getting at. This idea of the Holy Spirit coming. Okay, now it's going to be just explicit in several scriptures throughout the New Testament. I'm just going to read one of them to you. 1 Corinthians 6. I think it's going to be on the screen for you. Yeah. It says this, or this is Paul speaking. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? In other words, when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit, God, starts to live inside of you. Now, this would be completely foreign to a first century Jewish Christian. That, okay, the, the, God lives, okay, for the, all of their life, God's presence was in the temple or the tabernacle. But now all of this has changed, and we could spend years here. All of this has changed, and now God is in us. And, and the gospel, when it hits we joyfully surrender the gospel of the Holy Spirit and dwells you and I. Okay, that changes things. That means things are forever different for you and I. Okay, now here, here's the second reason. Not only does the Holy Spirit indwell us, but the Holy Spirit empowers us. And, and this is what Luke is getting at in, in Acts 1.8. And look at what he says here. So not only does he come and live in, but but the Holy Spirit does something in us. It empowers us. And here's, how, here's how Luke communicates it. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. It's going to give them power to be great witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's what, here's what Luke is saying. That for you to be effective, like for you to live well for Jesus... For you to be good witnesses, for you to carry on the mission, all of that is dependent upon the empowering of the Holy Spirit. If you want to advance the mission, every advancement of the mission is dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of believers. That's how this thing works itself out. Okay, now now I I need to wrap this in so we can get going here this morning. You, you start reading forward in Acts, and you're going to see this play out. You're going to see in Acts chapter 3, Peter is walking along. They come across a crippled guy. Through the Holy Spirit's empowerment, they say, listen, gold and silver we don't have, but what we do have we'll give you. Rise and walk. That is the Holy Spirit's empowerment. In, in Acts 16, 17, um, Paul, he, he's on this missionary journey, and the Holy Spirit is directing them, leading them. 
And so all throughout the book of Acts, you see the involvement of the Holy Spirit. Over 60 times, the Holy Spirit's referenced in the book of Acts in 28 chapters. Over 60 times. So you see the Holy Spirit is all over the book of Acts. Now, here's, here's what I want you to see, though. And this is going to take us to, to, Luke, or to Acts chapter 2. I want you to see what the first thing the Holy Spirit does in the life of believers. In the book of Acts, what the, what the Holy Spirit empowers first, a first priority, what the Holy Spirit does. Now, to catch you up here, um, Luke has said, okay, you're going to have to wait on the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you with power, and you're going to be my witnesses, but you have to wait. They replaced Judas, and so now they're back up to 12, and that gets us into Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And here it goes. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, and the day of Pentecost was 50 days after Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified on the Passover. 50 days later, you have Pentecost. And on Pentecost, all these Jews from all around the area would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, the disciples were. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's just a few things in Scripture or places in Scripture where you would love to have a video camera and to be there, you know? I think this was one of them. That is a wild scene. I mean, that is craziness happening all around you. Okay, so, so keep going here. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in its own native language? Okay, now skip to kind of down to verse 11 here. They go through the different languages and nationalities that were there. And in verse 11, it says this. And this, I want you to, to zero in on this phrase. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We hear them speaking, telling about all these mighty works of God in our own tongues, they said. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. I mean, if you ever had to pass off anything strange, listen, they're drunk. I mean, what? I mean, that, that explains it. Okay, so I, I want you to see, one thing's really obvious. I, I mean, just imagine a scene like this, and just imagine we have 10, 15 different languages in this room, and I start speaking, and you understand in all those 10, 15 different languages. Okay, that's, that's a pretty amazing thing that's happening in, in Acts 2. But I, I want you to zero in on this idea. The first thing the Holy Spirit did to empower them to be great witnesses is he empowered them to preach the gospel. That is the first thing the Holy Spirit did. He, he didn't empower them to do a great miracle. He empowered them to preach the gospel. That is thing number one. I, I love this phrase. It says that on their tongues, like what they were hearing, was basically them, them talking about, them speaking of, them boldly proclaiming the powerful, the mighty works of God. That's what was on their tongues. Okay, so I, I've got an aim, and this is where I want to push on us this morning. I want to push us toward being people who have the works of Jesus 
on our lips to being the sort of people in everyday conversation we talk about the gospel. This is the first thing the Holy Spirit does in them. He empowers great preaching. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does in you and I when he comes and indwells and empowers us is he empowers great preaching. Okay, you might even say it this way. The Holy Spirit produces preachers. He creates preachers. You and I have, okay, you and I have been called to preach. One third of the book of Acts is sermons. One third. I mean, the book of Acts could almost be called the sermons of the apostles. I mean, it might even be a better name for it. One third of the book is recorded sermons. Luke just saying, here's what they said. Here's what they said. This is what the Holy Spirit does. 60 times reference the Holy Spirit. All throughout the book of Acts, you've got preaching. There's 19 speeches, 10 full frontal monologue sermons go down in the book of Acts. Okay, so you see right off the cuff, God calls us, empowers us to be great proclaimers, preachers of the gospel. Okay, now I want you to hear what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying um, next week, get your mic, get your monologue ready, you're on. That's not the point. The point is this, that we are to be people who have the works of Jesus on our lips. In everyday conversation, the gospel should be talked about. At our workplace, the gospel should be talked about. In the middle of our friends, the gospel should be talked about. It is who we are. When people push on us, this is what comes out. When we are wrung out, the gospel seeps out of us. That's the point here. Okay, now I want, you, I want to show this to you all through the book of Acts. That when people are pushed on, all throughout the book of Acts, people are preaching. This is what they are doing. The Holy Spirit, I think this is the thread woven through the book of Acts. That all throughout it, you have got the Holy Spirit empowering people to be proclaimers or preachers of the word of God. So, so let, me, let me show this to you here. Um, the next chapter over in Acts chapter 3, I'm just going to run through a bunch of these. These are going to be on the screen for you. You don't have to keep up in your Bible. You can mark down the reference if you want. But in Acts chapter 3, Peter has just healed this guy. And this is what you see in verse 11. While he, this, this guy that was just healed by Peter, uh, he clung to Peter and John. All the people ran to them in the portico and called, uh, called Solomon's. Astounded, verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. He spoke to the people. He didn't keep it hidden. He spoke to him. Okay, uh, next chapter, uh, chapter 4. says this. Uh, okay, Peter and John, they're basically arrested, brought before the authorities. The authorities look at him and say, listen, if you keep preaching, it's going to go bad for you. And then this is how Peter and John respond in, in Acts chapter 4. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is the consistent message throughout the book of Acts. We can't help but speak about these things. We can't help but boldly proclaim what Christ has done. It seeps out all all throughout the book. Um, Chapter 5, this is just a descriptive picture of what's going on. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In Acts chapter 7, you've got Stephen. He's falsely accused, arrested. He gives this full-on, chapter-long sermon. 
um, in uh, Acts chapter 8. I think this is interesting. You've got persecution that breaks out. Saul is going from house to house, beating people, arresting people. And in Acts 8 chapter, or verse 4, it says this. Now those who were scattered went about not hiding and, and saying nothing. They went about Te- uh, went about pre oh where is it here we go went about preaching the word that's what they were doing they're scattered they're being persecuted they have left their home and as they are scattered they are going about preaching Acts chapter nine um, this is Paul he had just had his conversion and then it says this so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Acts chapter ten this is Peter he's given a sermon to a guy in the middle of the sermon he says this about it and he Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that was their job this is it like a God given do this Acts thirteen. This is Paul. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Acts 14, Paul again. When an attempt was made by the Jews, uh, Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. Okay, coming on down to verse 7. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. Acts 17 um, says this about Paul. That, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Acts 19, he entered the synagogues for three months and spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading. Acts 21, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Acts 22, he unfolds the sermon. Acts 24, Paul basically had a sermon before Felix. Acts 26, spoke before Agrippa. Acts 28, this is kind of the end of the book. He says this, from morning till evening, he, Paul, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Here's the point. All throughout the book of Acts, you have got the Holy Spirit empowering people to preach. And I'm not saying tomorrow, get up on your desk Get people around you, make sure they're all quiet and let them have it. I'm not talking about that. Almost all the sermons in Acts or the speeches in Acts are simply impromptu moments where a door is open and they take the opportunity, where a question is asked and they respond. Okay, in normal, everyday conversation, they are talking about boldly proclaiming, preaching, whatever word you want to use for it, they are talking about the gospel. That's the point. That is what the Holy Spirit does in us. And I think we need to be pressed on this because I think if we were to come around all of us, this is convicting for all of us. I think if we were just to follow us around in a typical day, the gospel is not in our conversation like it should be. I I think the word witness is helpful here. I can Acts 1-8, Paul's going to say, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you in power and you're going to be my witnesses. Here's what a witness would imply. That you are a person that bears to the truth. You are a person that speaks about what you have seen and heard. You're not a witness if you don't say anything. So the Holy Spirit empowers us to speak boldly. Okay, so that throws us back into Acts chapter 2 here. In verse 14. So it's 50 days after Jesus had been crucified. Okay, now, now this, is, this would be a little bit of a, uh, maybe a stressful sermon. They just killed Jesus 50 days prior. And you're about to get up to him and preach now. 
Okay, so in the middle of that, the Holy Spirit empowers our first gospel sermon. Okay, so here it is in Acts 2.14. It goes like this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and it says, addressed them. And that word addressed has some weight with it. It means that what he's about to say is heavy. Like it's going to pull on you a little bit. But it's a weighty issue, a weighty subject, a serious subject. And then Peter, he's ready to rock and roll. He starts preaching. And here, I'm going to divide basically what he's going to say into three different parts. Part one would go like this. It's revelation. And this is where Peter says, this is what God did. This is, this is what happened. Revelation. So he's going to unfold this thing. Now, okay, here, here's the thing. Peter's going to give facts about the gospel. People, people cannot be saved without the facts of the gospel. You can't do it. Okay, Acts, or, uh, Romans chapter 10 is going to kind of give this reasoning, and it's going to go like this, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Isn't that beautiful? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. But then it's going to say this. How are they going to call on one that they don't believe in? How are they going to believe unless somebody preaches, unless they hear? How are they going to hear unless somebody gives them the facts, gives them what they need to know? And here's what he's saying. People are not going to call upon the name of Jesus unless people proclaim the name of Jesus. Romans 1 says that you can know enough in nature about God to be held accountable to God. But you can watch the pansies in your flower bed, planet Earth. It's cool stuff all day long. You can watch it all day long. But those things are not going to give you enough to save you. People have got to know the facts about the gospel. And so Peter unfolds them. And here's what he's going to say. Number one, he's going to look at them and he's going to say this. Jesus was it. Like Jesus is the deal. Like, there's not another deal. Jesus is the deal. He's going to kind of um, quote this prophet Joel. And basically, he's saying to them, Jesus is the one you have been waiting on. Jesus is the central point in history. There's not another deal. You can wait another two months, three months, five years, a hundred years. There's not going to be another deal. Jesus was the deal, the center point, the thing you need to be thinking about. He was the fulfillment of all you have been waiting for. Jesus was it. Okay, so I think we need to hear that this morning, that Jesus is it. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is it. He is the one. He is the thing that everything else revolves around. Jesus is everything. Okay, Peter didn't stop there. He kept going. Um, He went on to say this, verse 23. Jesus is it, but you killed him. You killed him. I I put myself in Peter's position here. They had just killed Jesus 50 days prior. That's a pretty bold statement. I mean, that's a pretty spirit-empowered, I don't care if they kill me, I'm going to tell them the truth statement. That that you killed him. And and here's what I think he's getting at, and here's how I think that registered with them. Jesus was the Messiah. In verse 22, it's going to say that he was attested by miracles. 
And these miracles created wonder in people, and they ultimately served as a signpost to tell the Jewish people, this is your Messiah. This is the one you're waiting on. And then he comes in and says, but you killed him. And I think the effect of that would feel like this. Okay, so if Jesus was it and we killed him, what does that mean for us? It puts them in really bad position here. We just killed the Messiah. We just killed the one that everything is about. We just killed God's anointed. We just killed God. And so I think that the effect it had was we are sinful. We're sinful people. How are we going to stand before God knowing that we have killed the Messiah? And I think that needs to register on us today. We we weren't in the crowds chanting crucify, but listen, your sin and my sin nailed him to the cross. Amen? We killed him. The effect... Oh, no. What does that do between us and God? When we stand before Jesus, all exposed, we're in trouble. And, and then he goes on to say this. Um, you killed him, but, but here's the catcher. Jesus is alive. I, that's the rest of the sermon is basically saying that he's not dead anymore. You killed him, but now God has raised him from the dead. Like, he is not dead. He is alive. Now, here's the implication of that. You killed him. You're in trouble. Jesus is now alive. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting and ready to judge. That's the idea. Okay, now, these are some of the gospel facts. This is the core essential of what makes the gospel. Without those facts, people cannot be saved. So let me ask you this question. Are those facts, the reality of the gospel, are they on your lips in everyday normal conversation? I think that needs to be pressed down on us. Is that on our lips, the mighty works of God? The Spirit empowers that. The Spirit creates that. He makes us feel urgency for that. And then Peter's going to sum up the sermon. It goes like this in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. So so let me ask you again. I I just want to be real frank with you. Is that on your lips in normal, everyday, I'm hanging out with my guys, I'm with my friends, I'm doing my hobby with this group of guys. In your circle of influence, your social circle, is the gospel on your lips? Is it there? Now, now here's, it, here's the thing, and this is why I think we need to hear this. I think it's really easy for us to hide behind what we do. You know what I'm saying? And so I think it's much easier for us to, if we're going to get the gospel in our neighborhood, to pick their trash can up and take it to their door. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty non-confrontational. That's not very risky. Everybody loves a neighbor that will do that. I mean, I think it, it feels so much easier to say, here's how I'm going to show the gospel. I'm going to have them over to my house and cook dinner for them. That's great. I think we should do that. But here's where I think a lot of us are, is we hide behind what we do when God is saying, I want you to speak as well. Are the works of Jesus, the gospel, is it on your lips? Normal, everyday conversation. 
Okay, so here was part one, revelation, what God does. Here's part two, response, what we do. And this is what makes it, this is what makes conversation much more scary than just doing something nice for somebody is we don't know how people are going to respond. You can go at your social circle and you can talk cowboys with them all day long. Nobody gets offended if you raise up or bring up the cowboys, right? I mean, nobody's going to get offended if you talk about your kid's soccer. Everybody can talk about soccer. Everybody can talk about kids. Everybody can talk about school. Everybody can talk about those things. But you break the gentleman's kind of agreement once you cross the line into religion and politics, right? And so as soon as you bring up the name of Jesus, all bets are off in a conversation. If you want a good way to shut down a conversation, you just bring up the name Jesus, right? I mean, y'all been there. I mean, have we not had that happen? And God is saying, I have created you, empowered you, produced great preachers. We don't have the option. This is what comes out of us. Okay, now look at the response here. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And let me just stop right here for a second. And I want to plead with you just for a minute here. If you have never crossed the line of faith, you never joyfully surrendered your life. And we live in the Bible Belt where most people think they have when a lot of people haven't. If you have never crossed that line of faith, God, here is all of me joyful surrender. Now, I just want to plead with you to stop and consider that this morning. There is not a more important question for you to ever ask in your life than, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Jesus is the center point of history. Every person that has ever breathed on this planet has to deal with the person and work of Jesus. You have to make a decision on him. So I just want to encourage you, consider what are you to do with Jesus? Verse 38, Peter gives his, his basically direction to their question. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter's basic response is this. Here is what you do. If you want Jesus, here is how you get him. You repent. And here's what repentance means. It's kind of a... It would be kind of underneath the idea of faith. Repentance is turning from this way, returning from a life centered on you, a life all about you, a life that fulfills your dreams, your aspirations, turning from this and in faith, turning to Jesus. That's what repentance is. It is a change of heart and mind where things are forever different. It's not an emotional high. It is a resolve course of a change in your life. It is turning from this way and in faith to Jesus. That's what repentance is. And that is how you get Jesus. That is how you get redeemed, saved, purchased, bought. That is how the gospel has its effect on you is when you repent. Now, um, our charismatic friends, this is where they're going to say, but you have to be baptized. And let me just give you two quick responses to that and we'll move on. Number one is, uh, is this. I think the full weight of Scripture would say otherwise. I think faith is the full weight of Scripture. And number two, if you have to be baptized to be saved, it's adding a work onto salvation. And Ephesians is going to clearly say it's not by works. It's by faith. 
Okay, so repentance is the deal. That is the response. That is the response. Okay, last thing and we're done. Part three, the results, what God gives. And, and just make, like, don't, don't confuse yourself on this. Just know that salvation is from God. It is what God gives. And here, here's what it says in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so let's just have an honest conversation and then we'll wrap it up. When you dream about what Stonegate could be in this community, I don't know how your heart runs with that. But I'll tell you where my heart runs. It runs right there. 3,000 souls that day were added to their number, were saved. That's where my heart goes. That people, because of this place, would encounter Jesus in such a way that forever would be changed for them. Amen? Like people in your neighborhoods, your family members, the people you love, they would have an encounter with Jesus through this place that would forever leave them changed. Okay, now everybody look right here and then we'll finish. Last statement. That will only happen when spirit-empowered people proclaim the gospel in your neighborhoods, in your friends, within your family, within your social... It only happens when we proclaim the gospel. Are the works of God on your lips? Why don't you pray with me? I think it would be appropriate to close with um, kind of two directions this morning. And the, the first direction, um, Luke and Acts are written for the sake of skeptics. And so if you would be in here this morning and you're still trying to be convinced here, you're still wondering about Christ, the gospel. I, I just want to stop and, and plead with you again to consider it. There's not a better question that you'll ever ask in your life than, brothers, what shall we do? The answer is to repent in faith. That, that's the answer. To joyfully hold up your life in complete and total surrender. So I, I just want to let that sit for a second. And ask the question, has that happened? And what a beautiful day for that. What a beautiful day for that. Has that happened? Brothers, what shall we do? Repentance. Repent. And I love how Acts 3 talks about that. It says, when you repent, your sins are forgiven. And times of refreshment comes from the Lord. What a beautiful picture of what repentance with the fruit of repentance in our life, it refreshes, it takes the weight off. When we joyfully hold our life up to Jesus and repent and faith turn to him, times of refreshment come. For the rest of us in here, I think we need to feel conviction on our words. I think we need to feel the weight of the Holy Spirit has empowered you to preach. 
And that does not, I, I want to be clear, that does not mean you give a monologue in, in your workplace. It means that as God gives opportunity, that the work of Jesus is on your lips. It comes out of you naturally, freely. That it's a part of normal, everyday conversation. And I, I want to end by asking you a question that was asked to me here recently. It went like this. When is the last time you have shared the gospel with somebody outside of Jesus? When's the last time you've shared the gospel with somebody outside of Jesus? And I want to ask you this question to follow that up. Is your answer to that convicting? Is it convicting? And the truth is, I think for a lot of us, it would be. I mean, if our response to that is, Jesus has saved me. I mean, this is the Redeemer. He has bought me. He has purchased me. He has justified me. He has done all of that. And if our response is, it's been a month. It's been two months. It's been, for me, that is convicting. I have been convicted on this one. I need to change. Personally, I need to repent on this issue. The gospel has got to flow freely from my lips. The Spirit has empowered that in us. How long has it been since you have... Now, I think where we can really get confused on this thing is when we invite somebody to church, that is a good thing. We should do that. But don't confuse inviting somebody to church with inviting them to the gospel. I mean, those are separate things. So are we talking, are the life and work of Jesus, is it on our lips? I pray that it would be. I pray for this faith family that we would be people, a corporate body who proudly, boldly, courageously proclaims Jesus, preaches Jesus, speaks boldly about Jesus. He is everything. He is it. So God, will you help us in that? God, I pray that we might be encouraged in that this morning. God, that we would be encouraged to be the sort of people that would be recorded in Acts, people who speak boldly. When they're told they can't speak, I mean, they reply with this, you judge, but for us, we cannot help but speak about all that we have seen and heard. So God, help us in that. Give us courage this week. God, I pray for opportunity this week. God, I pray for men and women and children to be bold proclaimers of the gospel. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we sing this last song?